Tonight is his 31st yard site. The Rosh Hashiva was nifter just before the Kolo in Atlanta got started. I want to thank Rabbi Yaakov Zenworth. He had asked me to share a few words about one of the Gedolim of our door, Moran, our master, as we respectfully refer to him. I had the fortune of serving in the house, being a Meshamish of the Rosh Hashiva for the last 10 years of his life. It was a bit of anomaly that I was in his house. I grew up in a conservative Jewish home. I went to public school till I was in 11th grade. I could not recite an entire sentence in Yiddish. But because of a divine hand, divine providence, and the fact that I taught Joe Scheller how to juggle, I ended up getting the job of taking care of the Rosh Hashiva. I was there to help him, in particular to do some exercises, post-operational exercises for his health, and to accompany him wherever he traveled. He was older, and in many ways quite fragile, but his demand of his Talmidim remained. Every Tuesday, the Rosh Hashim used to give a sheer Kloli. Later, one of those Tuesday afternoons, I was walking with the Rosh Hashiva, and he met a bocher, one of the young, one of the young men who was studying the shiva. They chatted for a few moments. The Rosh Hashiva said, "Were you at the shir kloli today?" And the bocher said, "Yes, yes." What did you hear? What What was the kasha? Who asked the kasha? So the young man sort of hesitated for a moment or two, and the Rosh Hashiva said, "The marcheshes, the marcheshes is kasha." Yes, yes, the bocher said. What was the kasha? They fumbled for another minute or two, and the Rosh Hashiva said over the kasha. The Bokhar said, yeah, yeah, that was the kasha. <laughs> no, the Rosh Hashiva said, what was the teretz? So the Bokhar sort of, uh, you know, hemmed in hard a minute. The Rosh Hashiva said the teretz. The Bokhar said, yeah, that was the teretz. So the Rosh Hashiva turned to me and he said, I don't need you to be masking to everything. And I said, I wanted to know if you could say it. From the time he was a young man, he had a connection to many gedolim of Europe. Ramoshim Mordechai Epstein was the Rosh Hashiva of Slobodka, Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, Rav Avram Shapiro, who was the Rukovna Rav, the last chief rabbi of Lithuania, the Rav of the city of Minsk, and Rav Chaim Ozer Grzynski were just a few. Rav Chaim Ozer was the leading authority of his generation. He lived in the same city that the Rosh Hashiva's sister used to live. And when he went to the city to visit his, his sister, he went to see the Rosh Hashiva as well. Chaim Ozer would say, when he saw the Rosh Hashiva, the Dalhinaver Kunt, the Dalhinaver, that's the city that the Rosh Hashiva came from, he has arrived. And he stood up, the Koma Zakufa, he stood up completely for the Rosh Hashiva. A young man, this was the elder sage of the generation. In the late 20s, 1920s, Yaakov Yitzchak, the Rosh Hashiva sent out, leaving Europe, coming to America, with a vision to take the greatness of the Torah in Europe and to establish it here in America. I'd like to try to convey three ideas, three things that I feel not only defined who the Rosh Hashiva was, but also what he gave over to his thousands of Talmudim. The first is Limud HaTorah, learning Let me address each one 
was Limud Torah, the learning, Kovod Torah, respect for Torah, and the Malchus of Torah, the kingship, the sovereignty, the royalty of Torah. From a very young age, he worked very hard to learn and memorize all of Shas. He was an Ilui, he was a child prodigy. He admitted to being a little bit wild when he was very young because he had to wait for all of the other Talmudim and the Cheder to catch up. Before his Bar Mitzvah, he already knew Shas pretty much Balpeh. He knew his proficient in the entire Shas, and he was accepted into Knesset Yisrael, the Slobodki Yeshiva. The Rosh Yeshiva of the Yeshiva used to test Rabbi Ruderman every week on various Masechtas. And he used to practice to review, to go over the Masechtas by walking in the neighborhood, memorizing the Shaktavataria of the various Masechtas. Got to the point where he knew where each and every word in Talmud Bavli was. He could say exactly where it was on the page. During the First World War, Slobodka had to move to a Russian city. I believe it was called Krimichok. It was not far from the city of Minsk, and the Rosh Hashiva would walk up and down a main street in Minsk. It was about 12 miles by his estimation, and he would Chazer Moed going one direction, and Chazer Noshim coming back the other direction. And then he would say, Nish the Mishnais. <laughs> not just Mishnais entire Shakhtarataria of those Masechtas. Torah was so much a part of him that when you would meet the Rosh Hashiva, the first words that would come off his lips are, Vos Lernstim. What are you learning? Where are you holding and learning? It's not just the opening line for Rosh Hashiva. This really defined what he wanted to convey to his Talmudim. Where are you holding in learning? That is your life's ambition. That's our life's goal. Everybody has to work, but where are you holding and learning? That was the essential, que essential question for life. This was always followed up by a question about the Gemara that the person said they were learning. You can appreciate someone who had been learning and wasn't always reviewing everything and couldn't always talk and learning, so they weren't anxious to engage the Rosh Hashiva in conversation. It was not uncommon that as the Rosh Hashiva walked, you saw people running away in various directions because <laughs> they didn't want to be asked, what's Lernstein? One time I was actually walking with the Rosh Hashiva, we bumped into a bachar. He was totally unexpected. We came into the office and he didn't see the Rosh Hashiva was there. And, and he was like totally surprised. The Rosh Hashiva's new bus there still. So he was just totally caught off guard. He said, Kvisa. And the Rosh Hashiva screwed up his face. He said, what's there still? The guy ran and he yelled to me and says, I'm doing my laundry, I gotta go. Shas and all that he showed him on his fingertips. I had just become uh, common, uh, frequent in the house of the Rosh Hashiva in the December time of 1977. And a young Roman, a very young Roman, Rav Mordechai came in to discuss the wedding date for his upcoming wedding. And they were having difficulties about when they would set the date. So he said, maybe I should just get married on a Sarabatavix. So the Rosh Hashiva said, it's a tosis in, in uh, Erevin, Memphavavad Meis. It's unbelievable. It's a toast. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. Two lines in a toast that aren't really relevant to the whole conversation. There was a mice where somebody got married on, um, on a sarabatavis. And the shadow was, what do they do with the wine after they make the brachas of the chuppah? He had an uncanny ability to concentrate when he was learning. He became very engrossed in his learning. 
One of my responsibilities was to oversee a, a time that the doctor said he needed to exercise on an exercise bike, to move his legs because of the circulation. So he took his safer, he got on the exercise bike and he started to pedal for a little bit and then he started to read and he slowed down a little bit and he came to a total halt and he was so engrossed in his learning. I was just young, what was I supposed to do exactly? So I stood there, 20 minutes later he tucked up and he said, oh, no, no, it's enough exercise for me. As an expression of the Kovanah Torah, of the respect for the Torah, there was a meaning in the yeshiva that when Rav Ruderman came in and when he exited the yeshiva, the base medrash, the entire student body, the Talmudim all stood up. Um, in my day, the chairs in the base medrash were old wooden chairs that we got, the yeshiva got from the navy, I think, or the army from offices. They had no slides, no glides at the bottom, and no felt tips. So it was about 500 chairs that all rubbed against the linoleum floor as the Rosh Hashiva came in or the Rosh Hashiva went out. It was a very thunderous sound and very impactful to a young man at the time waiting for all of Shas to walk in and all of Shas to walk out. He carried himself very regally as a, as a melech, as a king, not because it was due to him as a person, but because of the Torah that he learned. Very often in the wintertime, he would put on a very beautiful coat, and it had like a rim of material, of fur, and, and he would put it on, and it made him look almost like a melech. And he would turn to me and say, do you know how old this coat is? He says, it's older than you. It's 50 years old. Simple person he was, but a royal person at the same time. I want to just try to sum up the Rosh Hashivas, Hashivas for learning Torah, this comes, it's a paraphrase from his Hakdama, the introduction to his Sefer, the Sefer they wrote called Avodas Levi. He wrote when he was 25 years old. It's a very beautiful introduction, it's worthwhile reading. In, in essence, he says, what sustains our nation is that learning never stops, even in the most difficult of times. Our huge spiritual heritage was practically birthed and created in large part during times of spiritual devastation. Chagai the Novi, last books of the Nevi'im, prophesied in the time of Golas Bovel. Golas Bovel was a time of tremendous spiritual devastation. When many of the people were returning, wanted to return to Eretz Yisrael, but they were intermarried. There was public Chil Shabbos taking place. Nevertheless, the Novi describes how he asked Kohanim some very esoteric questions in Hilchas Tuma Vatara. He said if a person was carrying in their coat a piece of uh, korban, of a, fl a flesh that was a puzzle, was a piece of korban, was puzzle, and it touched his garment, his garment touched the loaf of bread, the loaf of bread touched the nazar, would the nazar be tome? And Chagai and Novi tested the Kohanim. The way the Yushami learns, this is in the Hagdama, not the Pashib Shab and the Psukim, Yushami learns that the Navi was very impressed with this high spiritual plateau that they were on. Zakhdi Rosh Hashiva, Klali Yisrael is intermarrying. There's public Chil Shabbos, and the Kohanim are holding and learning to agree that they knew how to answer Ravi and Chamishi and Tuma and Tara. That's the nature of Klali Yisrael. That's how we survive. This is the way of life, the life of Torah. If there are those who are unfortunately so far from Torah, those who understand the Torah, 
That's our lifeline. They shouldn't stop enhancing and honoring the Torah. Presciently for this kolom in Atlanta, the Rosh Hashiva expressed the idea in his Akdama that the Navi knew that the Kohanim were holding in such a high level of Kedusha would have a hashpa on those that were Machal Shabbos and that were intermarrying. The Rosh Hashiva's Mesiris Nefesh for learning was ever present. He told me that a few days after his marriage, the Rebetzin got food poisoning. The doctor told him she only had a few days to live, maybe a week to live. Do you imagine he just got married? He didn't have, a, he didn't have parents that were there at the Chasna. He was married off by the Rosh Hashiva. Imagine the emotional, mental drain. Just got married and now he said his wife is about to die. He threw himself into his learning while they were waiting for results. And Mitoch the Tsar, he was Machadish, what is now Simon Dalit in the Sefer, Avodas Lady. It's one of the most complex pieces in the Sefer that he did in the midst of the emotional, mental pain that he was suffering right after his marriage. Baruch Hashem, the Rebbe's in recovery. Let me address for a moment Torah Slavodka. What the Masora, the Masora that the Rosh Hashiva got from his Mashiach, his Rebbe, of Nosen Svi Finkel, the altar of Slobodka. The altar was a Talmud of the altar of Kelm, himself was a Talmud of the founder of the Musar movement, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. The altar was very medactic and calculated in his every movement. From the Seder that he had in learning, I was learning how he organized his learning to how he comported himself. He oversaw every aspect of the Talmudim's lives. His influence was incomparable. Counted amongst his Talmudim are at least 10 Rosh Hashivas of the next generation. Such Madhigim as Rav Hutner Zichron Levroch of Chaim Berlin, Rav Aaron Kotler Zichron Levroch of Lakewood, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky Zichron Levroch of Torah Vedas, Rabbi Eliezer Yehuda Finkel, his own son of the Mir, Rav David Leibowitz Zichron Levroch of Chavetz Chaim, and Rav Ruderman Zichron Levroch of Ner Yisrael. Rav Ruderman described his relationship with the altar as a father to his son. The main emphasis of the altar Slavotka's teachings was the godless ha'odam, the greatness of a human being. As the Yiddish expression is, their greater mensch. We are, human being is a unique birya, creation of the Ribbon Shalom. Even the Malachim thought was like God, God's self. A Ben Torah's behavior, therefore, should reflect that Kedusha and loftiness. It should be evaluated and weighed based on the Torah's sensitivities. Sometimes that is very inconsistent with what people think makes sense. When the Rosh Hashiva arrived in Slavotka, he's a very young man, they made, gave him a roommate. And the, the altar of Slavotka felt that the roommate was not going to be a good influence on him. I think I know who the roommate was. I'm not 100% sure. I don't, I recall the Rosh Hashanah said it was a Yid, Shaul Lieberman, who eventually became the head of the rabbinic department, of the Talmud department in Jewish Theological Seminary. It was a Veltz Talmud Chacham, but the, the altar was concerned about the influence. So the altar took the Rosh Hashim into his own home, and he put him up in his library, slept in his library every night for years. There's a significant Misa incident that happened uh, to me that uh, really was part of what the Rosh Hashiva's Masar was from the altar. Not long after the Rosh Hashiva arrived in Slavodka, he was just around the time of his Bar Mitzvah, he started a project to learn through Shas in one year. And around, about halfway through the project, 
the altar of Slovakia received a letter that his father, the Rosh Hashim's father, Yehuda Leib, had passed away. So the altar decided that even though the Rosh Hashiva was the only boy in the family and the only one who had the chiv to say Kaddish, he didn't tell him for six months until he finished Shas because he felt the schus of his learning Torah was greater than the reciting of Kaddish. Many years later, 1980, my mother passed away and I was, went to visit the Rosh Hashiva at lunchtime at Mount Sinai Hospital. Around two o'clock, um, I wanted to get into the car, drive back, because I had a daven from the Almond and say Kaddish. And I was sort of preparing myself to leave, and the Rosh Hashiva asked, where are you going? So I said, well, somebody is coming, I have to get back to the Shiva, I have to say Kaddish for my mother. So he stopped me and he said, how do you know that it's not more important for you to stay here and take care of me than it is to go to recite Kaddish? I didn't recite Kaddish that way. That day, I stayed with the Rosh Hashiva. When I was in the yeshiva, I had a hard time balancing between learning, taking care of my personal needs, and trying to respond to all the people that were asking for help, for chesed, whatever it was. The Rosh Hashiva often repeated to me a phrase, this almost sounds like a chesedish Torah, a chesedish tickle of Torah, but he said, Pashupshat means that if a person sins, there's no difference between an animal and a person. But he used the phrase, and a human being can do more than an animal, because he can say no. One last story just to reflect the Musr that came from Slavodka. The Rosh Hashiva, the present Rosh Hashiva of Mary Yisrael's Rav Arn Feldman, and he had graduated from... Um, TA in Baltimore and came to the yeshiva to Mary Yisrael. And the Hanhalit suggested that they put him in the same yeshiva as his older brother, Rav Emanuel Feldman, our Rabbi Emeritus. And Rav Arn Feldman felt very uncomfortable about that and he came to the Rosh Yeshiva for advice. So the Rosh Yeshiva told him that the altar used to say over, Moshe Rabbeinu was asked to take Yidin out of Mitzrayim. And he argued with Rebun Shalom for six days. What was he arguing about? He didn't want to be Pogeya in the covet of his older brother. Take my older brother. He's a Navi before me. He should go first. And the Rebun Shalom was arguing for six days. Sok the altar. Think about this. Klaal Yisrael is at 210 years of the Mitzrayim. It's time for him to go out. This is the only Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim there's going to ever be, and now is the time. And Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, I can't go now, I can't go now. They delayed a full week because he didn't want to be Pogay in the COVID of his older brother. That is what the Rosh Hashiva told of Aaron Feldman, and that's how he conducted himself. Let me just speak a little bit about the third area, the idea that the Rosh Hashiva conveyed about the Achrayas for Klal Yisrael. Rosh Hashiva conveyed to his Talmidim that they had to be holding and learning, Talmidim Chachamim, but also take responsibility to be Oseh B'Tzorach Yitzibur. He, in his own lifetime, inspired two world-class Askanim. One was Rav Moshe Sher, Zechran of who was a Talmud of the Yeshiva, and the Rosh Hashiva's own brother-in-law, Rav Naftali Nuberger, Zechran of he also inspired the Rosh Hashiva of Shmuel Kamenetsky of Philadelphia Yeshiva and scores of Talmidim, both locally in Baltimore and throughout the world, 
that have balanced in their lives the idea of learning and the idea of carrying the responsibility <coughs> of the cloud. He didn't just teach it, he lived it. He was the Nasi, the president of the Rabbinic Board of Torah Masora, of Chinuch Hatzmai, that's the independent Torah systems. In the time that he was in Torah Masora, Torah Masora opened several hundred schools throughout the United States of America. He was also a member of the Moetzes Gedolia Torah. Just want to share two maizim. One is a public uh, sense of achrayas, and the other is a personal. In 1980, one day in 1986, I came to visit by the Rosh Hashiva, and I could see that he was visibly upset about something. And he asked me as I came in, and usually exchanged greetings, but he asked me, did you hear any news? And I said, what? What news would I have heard? And he said, in about Istanbul. I didn't know anything about it. He said there had been a terrorist and many Jews were killed that Shabbos and he was very concerned about what was going on if I heard any news. A little later we went for a walk. We went near the dorm. So he said maybe you can ask some of the Bahram if they know about what happened. So I explained to the Rosh Hashim that it was his policy that there would be no radios in the dorm so there was no one to ask. We wouldn't have to. So then he explained, no, it's not a din in the Chetza, it's a din in the Gavra, it's the problem with the people, not the radio itself. Everywhere we walked, he stopped to see if someone would know about what had happened. I saw a yid that carried with him the achrayas of something that happened thousands of miles away, uh, rested on his shoulders the whole rest of that day. This mice is actually a famous mice in the annals of Ner Yisrael, uh, but I saw it with my own eyes. One Rosh Hashanah afternoon, a morning uh, during Musaf, the Rosh Hashiva got up and left the room quite suddenly, left the base matters. Everybody got up, there was that rumble of noise. This time the Baal Tvila, the Baal Musaf, stopped waiting for the Rosh Hashiva to go out, expecting they would come back uh, soon after. Minutes passed and nothing happened, he didn't come back. So people, myself included, started to look for the Rosh Hashiva. We saw him coming back from his home across the way, for the Rosh Hashiva was a, you know, 15, at, I don't know, three, four minute walk, and it took a few moments. And there she was on his way back. He didn't say anything. It was the middle of Chazar Zashatz. We finished Musaf, and afterwards he said that while he was davening, he noticed that he had his wife's machzor, and she loved to daven out of her own machzor. He realized he had taken it by mistake, so he felt it was his achrayas to return it because he had taken it by mistake. So he walked it back home, and then came back to the base Menashe. I would like to end with an insight about how the Rosh Hashiva saw his own hafgid here in the United States of America. A group of elder Bachram came from the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva. Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva, the York Forest Hills, the original founding Rosh Yeshiva of Chavetz Chaim was also a Talmud of the altar of Slavatka, of David Leibowitz. They had an audience with the Rosh Yeshiva. They wanted to ask him about his take on Slavatka, on the altar of Slavatka, what it was like. But then they asked him the following question. They said, the Rosh Yeshiva, they, they wanted to know, our yeshiva, the Rosh Yeshiva says, is made in the image of the yeshiva in Slavodka. Like the altar made the yeshiva in Slavodka. How come Mary Yisrael was not made the same way the yeshiva was made in Europe? So the Rosh Yeshiva answered that the, if the altar had come to the United States of America and seen the lay of the land, he would have made a different yeshiva. When the Rosh Hashiva established Mary Yisrael in Baltimore, he did not simply replicate what existed in Europe. He strategized and developed a Mokum Torah that would express his vision of what an American yeshiva bachar should look like. Limudat Torah, Torah Slavodka, 
and the achrayas for every yid. Yehei zichro boruch. Rabbi Silverman for uh, really a, a wonderful job in uh, recreating critical aspects of the Rosh Hashiva. Um, just to pause for a moment uh, to uh, create a context for what we're trying to do here. Why, why is this important? What's the point of hearing that the Rosh Hashiva Rabbudaman Zatzal was a God of Yisrael? What's the point of hearing these stories? Uh, what's the point of talking about Rabbi Weiberg? So first of all, practically, for Atlanta, Georgia, very much, very significant, and that uh, my father, for example, is a Muslim of Rabbudaman. They were very close as a Bachar. My father tells me that the practice in the Beis Medrash was that if they got a little tired and they weren't able to learn, that they would leave the Beis Medrash and go into the Rosh Shiva's office to uh, discuss the issues of the dead. And Rosh Shiva was obviously um, Besides his, uh, as Rabbi Silverman indicated, besides his immersion in Talmud Torah, Yom Balayla, he was also fascinated and fascinating about the issues of the day. And so they would take a five or ten minute break, talk to him, and then he would chase them back into the base medrash. Um, to reinforce what Rabbi Silverman said about uh, uh, Rabbi Silverman and where you, where, what are you learning? Uh, in the summers, we as a family would visit Baltimore uh, because my father's parents, Alayah Mashalim, lived in Baltimore. And when we were there, my father would naturally take me and uh, my brothers to visit Rosh Shiva. When uh, we came back from Eretz Yisrael, it was right around my bar mitzvah. It was uh, the first year that I had actually learned Gemara. Rosh Shiva immediately gave me a miniature bechina on Mesechus Bamakama. And uh, I was amazed. I answered every question that he asked. And I was actually able to tell him the maskan of the Matlekas of Yachim and Shlekesh Eishim Shimamono. And I was able to tell him what Dafa was on. He was blown away. When I got engaged, Rashiva says to me, and I knew this was coming, he said, I remember when you came back from Israel, you knew Mesechus Babakama backwards and forwards. And I said, that's right, and that's the last Mesechta I ever learned. Because I wanted to make sure that he did not continue to press me. I learned, <laughs> I learned to avoid him on Tuesdays. Because he would always ask, Rashiva said, what, you know, uh, and I would try my broken Yiddish. I remember once talking about saying over a shir that he said and uh, the Gemara there in Dantes talks about the uh, the Chulda that took the Chumans from one house to another house and I just, I uh, confused the word Heisen and Heisen Heisen and Hans, Heisen and Houses and the Rosh Shiva could not stop laughing could not stop laughing he had a tremendous sense of humor but uh, when I would come back from Atlanta as assistant rabbi and visit with him, um, he was just absolutely preoccupied with how things were going here, how things were going with the conservatives. He had an odd relationship with uh, Rabbi Harry Epstein, who was uh, from Slovakia, uh, who was a conservative rabbi. And so he would always ask me, what's going on with Rabbi Epstein? He always wanted to know what was going on. Very, very, uh, very involved. And this is the way he was with all his time with him around the country. The Rashid was extremely aware. So we in Atlanta are beneficiaries of his teaching, of Rav Weinberg's teachings. Somebody tell me who had come here, the Kolo, as Rabbi Silver mentioned, the Kolo itself, where the impetus for the Kolo coming from Leir Yisrael was really Rav Weinberg's itself, because nobody made a move without consulting with him. And the original uh, four who came down here 
and Daniel with his blessing. And um, the, uh, whether you, you, you may feel it, you may hear it in Silverman's words and in my words, but the, uh, <coughs> the effect of the Torah of these two Gedolim, each in their own way, is still felt. I see it regularly in Atlanta in different ways. So what are we doing? So I, I want to distinguish, first of all, the difference between a hesped and what we're doing here. A hesped is uh, that we have a job to describe the terrible void that's created when somebody died. When Tamil Chacham dies, we're obligated to pronounce as clearly as possible the deficit and the sense of loss and the disaster that it is when a Tamil Chacham dies. And it doesn't matter how old the Tamil Chacham is when he is nifter. It's a disaster because every Tamil Chacham is a different manifestation of the godless of Torah. Every Tamil Chacham is a combination of his unique personality with the Torah itself resulting in a new mitzvah, something new that didn't exist before in the world. A new aspect of Torah is revealed in the world. And when a Talmud Chacham dies, that's gone. And it's important that a person, that's what a hesped is. That's not what we're doing here. This is not a hesped. What we're doing here is actually trying to notice different aspects of the Torah that are brought into the world by these Talmudah Chachamim. Talmud Chacham is like, uh, discovers a new, every Talmud Chacham discovers like a new continent. Literally, a new continent. And uh, when he dies, we want to make sure that that continent still stays on the map. Therefore, it's our job to like recreate as much as we can of the Talmud Chacham, because then we still have shaykhs to that aspect of the Torah of the Talmud Chacham. Um, there's also another aspect. Torah advises us that we have to be exceedingly careful about forgetting the words of the Torah. The Talmud Chacham once he passes, there's a danger that his Torah will evaporate unless we keep it alive. And therefore, it's important for us to reinforce, to review, to remember, not because we want to realize Baruch Hashem, we had a source of learning with him, from him, but because we want to keep his Torah alive so that we can actually, so that the Torah itself that was brought into the world by that unique combination of Torah and Torah Chacham is still here. The, um, the goal in all in biographies of Tamil Chachamim is never just to, to have memories, but also um, the, uh, the value is that we're inspired to see what the Torah does to a person. In other words, the, the, these Tamil Chachamim weren't born this way. They became this way by immersion in Torah, by Hasmada, and not only Hasmada in terms of hours, day and night, but by consistency meaning that they practiced again and again and again, and the Torah became a part of them. When I say practice, I don't mean the halacha. I mean they practiced their approach over and over until it became a part of them, until they grew from it, and the Torah was expressed through them in an even more powerful way. So that's what we're doing here tonight, to be able to, to uh, absorb some of that. But Weinberg had, first of all, speaking about Tzadikachamim, and I want to tell you, I'm speaking tonight as a Talmud, not as a son-in-law. Meaning that which I saw as a son-in-law, I, I keep separate, not that it's private, glad to share it, but I want to share Dafka, what I saw as a Talmud, because I think that's what's relevant to the rest of the world. I, I was amazed at his reverence for Tamir Chachamim. The reason I was amazed is because when you would tell over a Misa from a Talmud Chacham, first of all, he would listen attentively, and when the Misa rang true, he would almost begin to cry. There was an emotional response from the beauty of the Misa to see how would Tamil Chacham behave? But I was amazed because you can almost never get a Misa through 
without him saying that it's impossible that the Misa happen. Because he would say, he would say, hear, what's, hear what the issue is. He, do, it, he, he couldn't have responded that way. If he responded that way, he'd be a Russia. And then he'd explain why that response would be inappropriate. And it bothered him very much that people repeat, repeat thoughtlessly, acting as if they admired what they were saying when he would point out that that can't, that's the Torah, is the Torah Chachma. The Torah is the Torah of thought. And so it was very difficult. We held our breath, somebody would tell over Misa. But when he actually heard it and received it, he would, I mean, he would mamash be married to mamash. He would be, a, and he had an expression, could die to be born to hear a Misa like that, that he would say. Because from that, he would see the godless of Torah. So he had tremendous respect and reverence to Tamir Chachami. The thing, what, the thing that I got from him is that the sugya that you're dealing with speaks to you. That you can actually hear what the Torah is saying. You, not somebody else to tell you what the Torah is saying, but you as the Talmud, you as a Jew, can actually hear it. If you're willing to, if you're willing to do the work, you actually can hear it. This is a very important lesson, and it sounds so simple, but it's not so obvious, especially when you go through yeshiva, because you are in touch with Tamir Chachamim of huge proportions, with unbelievable minds, and it's very easy to believe that the real Torah can only be had by somebody with that mind, with that background, who knows all shas, who's able to, to write a sefer at age 18 uh, on Kachim. And, the, and the, everybody else is just an imitation Talmud of Torah. Rav Weinberg, in spite of the fact that he was such a brilliant person, his whole Mahalach was just listen carefully, listen with discipline, hear what the Pasuk is saying, hear the Sugya, think it through, allow it to speak, don't impose your own mind or your own preconceived notions, your ideas of how it's going to go because you learned this last year, or you heard this Pasha last year, or you went through this Rama before, or because you learned this uh, Mesechta two years ago, and you heard this fantastic Shir, and therefore, and therefore you already know, and now you're just reviewing to refresh. With him, it was everything was fresh. Everything is, was as if he had never seen it before. We wise guy Talmudian, 19 and 20 years old, we used to make fun of it. We used to make fun of the fact. I don't understand. How long has he been Rosh Hashiva? Why is he going through this Rashi as if he never saw it? Why is he speaking out Tosfos Teretz as if he didn't see Tosfos? Right? And we, we didn't understand that he was teaching us how to think through line by line. And he gave us, therefore, the ability. I know that many of us left the base measure, so to speak, with the awareness that the Torah belonged to us. We weren't hopelessly lost without Rashiva or without Rebbe or without, without whoever it was that we admired because if we worked hard and if we listened, we had hope. That was a very important yisod with him. The irony is that he was a man of such brilliance and I always felt just my interpretation, but I always felt that a person of such brilliance to be mitzamsen himself, to limit himself, not to say a fantastic teretz on a Rambam that everybody would be overwhelmed by because it wasn't forced by the words of the Rambam, a Rebbe. It wasn't forced by the logic of the Rambam. It wasn't forced by the seder of the Rambam. It wasn't forced by the nuances of the halachas of the Rambam. That was an amazing thing. That was, tr that was true avdos. It was true loyalty and devotion to Torah Hashem. 
These are the words of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I can't say things loosely, even if they will be impressive, and even if they will solve all the problems in the sugya, if I'm not forced to say it. So the discipline involved was a discipline of someone who was approaching Torah Hashem. It's a Torah of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Shalom deserves to say what he's saying without me imposing my ideas on what he's saying, even though it would be really interesting to f- pursue those ideas. It was an amazing thing. So much so that there were many, many Achroinim that the Rosh Shiva didn't, didn't mind arguing with, with those Achroinim. As a matter of fact, I was learning with them one afternoon, and uh, we saw a certain Achroin, I won't mention it, because, uh, because I might be, my memory may not be faulty, and he didn't understand the Achroin's kasha. Didn't understand, didn't make any sense. The way we're learning is not a kasha. Not only is it not a kasha, he missed the entire point. And then he spent the next hour telling me which Achran I should worry about. If I have a terrorist to his kasha, it should bother me. And if I have a terrorist to this Achran's kasha, it shouldn't bother me. And he went through a whole list of which Achran in my you know, It was an amazing thing. And of course, in Kaveger, that he had, you know, I, remember, I remember where it was. He had a terrorist or the Kaveger's kasha. The Kaveger asked the kasha and the lives of the Tzarech Iyun Gadol, which is the ultimate. Tzarech Iyun Gadol by the Kaveger is like, He's explored every possible answer and he has no answer. But Weinberg had an answer. And he was so agitated that he had an answer. He wasn't happy that he had an answer. It, it aggravated him because he knew he must be wrong because Rekhavegger had to be right. Rekhavegger said Sarachin Gadol and he couldn't understand it. And with Maj, this is a, a tremendous lesson. It wasn't just the sugyas that way, it was the sugya of life that way as well. He was a person who did not impose on a situation what he wanted to see, or what you would expect to see, or what the world would expect to see. And he was somebody who eschewed the concept of principle. I've repeated this many times because of the lack, it stays a thing until this day. It's a very dangerous thing if it's not applied properly. But he once told me, when I was discussing a problem with him, and he told me his, he told me an approach and I said, the Rebbe, he says it's a matter of principle. And he said to me, grab my arm. And he said, if anyone ever tells you it's a matter of principle, run the other way. Because to him, principle means I'm following a formula. I'm not thinking through. I haven't asked myself what a Kaddish Barker wants in this situation today. I'm just following a, like, you know, it's dogma. It's, you know, it's dogma. It's very from dogma, but it's dogma. That he didn't, uh, he didn't appreciate. He felt that you had to hear what was going on. There are many questions. Sometimes he would change his answer dramatically based on how the question was asked, because he listened. So for example, once I was asking him on behalf of, on behalf of somebody who had a Shiloh about a Shidduch, and it was a certain thing that bothered him about the uh, young lady that he was dating, and I spoke it over with Rosh Shiva, and Rosh Shiva said, it's not a problem, you should go by them. And so I said, Barashiva, he says it's eating him up that blah, blah, blah. He says, eating? Eating is a different story. Tell him he should not continue. Uh-huh. I said, Rebbe, you just told me that he should continue. And he said, you didn't say that it was eating him up, meaning it had to do with how that person was dealing with it. It's not the objective facts. I know a certain Talmud who was a wonderful, charming, powerful, eloquent uh, Talmud Chacham. And he wanted to go into Rabbanus, and 
Uh, Rabbi Weinberg told him not to go into Rabbanus, and he said, why? He said, you have thin skin. It will eat you up. So it makes me wonder about why he didn't say it to me, but that's another story. Um, <coughs> there was once a case, he told me once, it, it, there was a case in a certain city details are not important, and anybody who's listening to this live or on tape should not learn anything from it other than the point I'm making. But it's Kedai to repeat it. Um, to give an example of how principles didn't guide him, thoughtfulness guided him. There was a certain city that had a certain history with a mikvah. And um, the, uh, the presiding uh, Orthodox community decided that they were not going to allow the conservatives to use the mikvah for Gevis. My Shvera held it was a tremendous mistake. And I said, what do you mean? We don't recognize that generous. He said, of course not. And everybody knows that. And the only thing we're doing is rubbing their noses in the dirt. And there's no mitzvah to rub their noses in the dirt. It's only going to create more antipathy. And so he held it was a big mistake. Um, he was a little scary. If you read it, was, it was very hard to swallow whole because he said things that you agreed with as long as it's about somebody else. It was about you, you didn't want to hear it. At the Persian, some of you were very too young for this, I can't believe it, but there was a thing called the Persian Gulf War in 1991. The Persian Gulf War ended on Purim. The Persian Gulf War was all about Israel. The only country that was not allowed to fight was the only country that Saddam Hussein al-Shamal wanted to destroy. And they were living in terrible fear there with Hadrayatum and with gas masks and the whole thing. And uh, there was an unbelievable alliance of countries. And the whole thing was a biblical story. It was literally a story of biblical proportions. And the story ends on Purim. And there were Midrashim flying all over the place about, you know, in the days before Mashiach, this is exactly how it's going to work out. It's going to come against Persia. The whole, it, was, it was a tremendous thing. I spoke to Meshvera. And, I, and um, I said to him, this is just unbelievable. He said, it is unbelievable, but nothing's going to change. I said, what do you mean? He said, all that's going to happen as a result of this, everybody's going to do tshuva. Ner Yisrael is going to become more Ner Yisrael. Ger is going to become more Ger. Satmar will become more Satmar. He held that tshuva is not to do more of what you're doing. Tshuva is to examine the premise on which you're living your life and perhaps change the premise altogether. That is not easy to swallow when it's you. The guy down the street should always change his premises, but that you also have an apprise to change the basic principles that under which you're operating, very difficult. This is that why, other because of the fact that he was such an Evid Hashem, whose avoda, personal avoda and tefillah, was inescapably devoted and sincere, and because of his learning, which was so brilliant and so clear and so filled with Islamists and devotion to Torah Hashem, because of that, his revolutionary ideas could not be dismissed. If he was smaller in learning, or if his evidence of his abdus of the Kaddish Baruch was in any way smaller, he would have been dismissed because he was uncomfortable. He was, after all is said, someone who was willing to say what needed to be said, even if it was painful to say. He once made a machah, 
invite Lisa Kimmel to come in here who were present at the time. I heard the tape as soon as possible afterwards, before the internet, so it had to be mailed to me by a thing called the U.S. Post Office. And um, he made a macha when the covenant of Abshach was impugned in, in writing in a particular publication. And he made a macha, and the people there were concerned that his health was at risk because of the tremendous stress and strain that uh, he was under and the intensity of his macha, the absolute pain that a walking Sefer Torah like Mashach, would be attacked the way he was and demeaned the way he was, it was unbearable to him. And we had never seen or heard him talk any way close to that level. But this was his Ava of Tamachacham and his covenant of Torah. What, what can we take from him? What can we take in a couple of minutes before we have left? One is the Torah belongs to us. As I said before, the Torah is ours. It's not somebody else's. Kaddish Baruch is talking to me. He's not talking to him to talk to me. He's talking to me. Which means we have an obligation to learn Torah and to listen to the words of Torah and to understand it to the best of our ability. And our responsibility is to develop ourselves as Talmidim of the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Obviously, through being Talmidim of other people who are greater than us, but obviously to develop ourselves to be masters of the Torah. Which leads to the second thing. There's a thing called the entire Torah. In other words, he taught what the Rambam taught, that there's, the Torah has a beginning and an end, and it's our job to know it. So it's not just a question of holding and learning, but it's actually a responsibility of every Jew to know the words of God from beginning to end. And there's a defined beginning and a defined end, both in Torah Shabbat and in Torah Shabbat Peh. It's an important lesson that he, that he left us. Another important lesson. Chumash is the basic building block of our Amunah. That from reading Chumash, from listening to the Pesukim, from being the Dayakim of Pesukim, one can get basic Yisadahs of Amunah basic consensus of what it means to be a Jew. I'll give you a very quick example of simply reading a Pasuk and building out a whole thing. Kharish Barkley says, can I cover up from Abram what I'm going to be going to do is dumb? Abram is going to be a it's going to be a great nation. So then Kharish Barkley tells him what he's going to do. And Abram Avinu says, Ramavina says, God forbid, you're going to do this? This is not justice. So the Kasha is, Ramavina thinks that a Kaddish Baruch Hu, who is a Tzur Tamim Paolo, is not going to be able to do justice? How could he say such a thing to a Kaddish Baruch Hu? Is he the Territ says, Ramavina understood from a Kaddish Baruch Hu, when a Kaddish Baruch Hu says, Eredana, I'm going to come down, and I'm going to see HaKatzah, I'm going to assess them, and I'm talking to you, Ramavina, I'm asking the Beis and Shalmata to actually enter into a judgment. Abraham Avinu is arguing with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, not that your justice is no good, but the Beis, through the eyes of a Beis and Shalmata, it's not proper. Nobody, no human court can do this. And that's what Abraham Avinu is arguing. This, he says, is the beginning of a Kaddish Baruch Hu actually building out 
the koach of the basin shalmata, that the Kaddish Baruch will actually follow the basin down here. And he pointed out that the Torah says that the schus of the basin shalmata is not the tzidkos of Kalei Yisrael, it's not of Ramavinu's Avos Hashem, it's not of Ramavinu's Yiras Hashem. It's because, because he's Avram because he's going to be a great nation. Meaning because he's Klal Yisrael, because Klal Yisrael is going to be the source of the world, therefore there's going to be a concept that I, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, am going to follow Beis and Shabbatim. This he gets just stuff from reading Pesukim before he got to the Chazal, before he got the Mepharshim, just leading, reading the Pesukim and following the, the Yukim. So there's more there. But this is just, a, I picked at random one example of how Kodesh itself is, is uh, he turned it into a basic building line. Rosh Shiva's uh, yard site is Shavasa Batamas, and um, we always felt that uh, the Shriya Saluchas obviously is Shavasa Batamas, and obviously 19 years later, it's the loss, the pain of the loss, the rawness of the loss is no longer with us, but um, the, the Rosh Shiva was taken from us uh, in the prime of his life. He, we all felt that he had still not reached his peak accomplishment. There were still thousands of companies to reach. There was still tremendous motivation to be had. There were still Eish HaTorahs to be created because as Renoich Natal would say all the time, Eish HaTorah is a product of his brother Rebbe's uh, inspiration. And there was so much more to be had, so much more encouragement, so much more clarity, so much more Biru Torah and it was taken away from us. Shviras Haluchas. We felt that we weren't Zohar, that somehow Kaddish Baruch had taken away from us that which could have been had we been Zohar. So Mir Tashem, we should be Zohar through remembering the Rosh Shiva, through learning from his Talmidim, through taking his inspiration, through living the Achrayas that he epitomized for Klai Yisrael, the love that he had for Klai Yisrael, the sense of responsibility that he had, the sense that he conveyed to everybody that as long as all of Klai Yisrael doesn't have a shaykhus to Torah, none of Klai Yisrael has the Torah. He emphasizes this over and over again. As long as, as long as we absorb that, we're giving, first of all, chiyos to him, and we're also, Mir Tashem, giving chiyos to the Torah that he left us. Yehi zichor baruch. Like, I don't know, like, you know, are we good? Are we bad? I don't know, you know. Right, I have to compare it. So. Right.